Hey, Zan. Kenneth, how are you doing? Doing good. Nice day today and a nice election week. Yeah, I just spent election night. I was over in HFSC watching uh, election night coverage with GU Politics. Yeah, I'm sure that was uh, anticlimactic. Very. With all the mail-in ballots nowadays, it's the whole season. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really quite frustrating, especially because you have runoffs now. Like, you, you can't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it definitely defied my expectations. But very early on, you could see that, you know, what the media was saying was going to happen didn't happen as, you know, I think the best example um, was in Pennsylvania and the margins Fetterman achieved. And I'm curious how it's going to play out where uh, the rest of the states are being counted right now. For sure. And I'm glad that we get to talk with a guy who knows all about polling, knows all about elections, and uh, for the second time. Oh, yeah. You know, we had a great conversation with Alex on, uh, when, when was our... Our conversation with Alex was two days after the midterms, right here in the geopolitics office. Yeah, so we kind of had an idea of what the Senate map was going to look like. Just It just came down to a couple key races in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. And it was great to hear kind of what he thought the data was going to turn out like and what he thought the kind of uh, balance of power was going to look like. Yeah, and I mean... Right now, we're still looking to see what the balance of power will be, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the Nevada and Georgia map right now, and Georgia, it seems like for sure now, it's going to be a runoff in Nevada. Um, you know, it's, it's still anyone's game, but the stuff Alex said and predicted seems to be coming into play. Um, so Absolutely. look out for that. Definitely. So if you guys are ready to uh, listen to this episode, let's jump right on in. All right, we're back with Alex Lundry after the midterms. It is November 10th right now, yes. and uh, we're still counting. So what are you thinking? We're still counting. We don't know. <laughs> right? We don't know, but it, we do know a few things. We know it was a pretty bad night for Republicans, pretty bad night for Donald Trump. Um, fascinating results. Really the strongest midterm results for, uh, for a presidential party in a very, very long time. Um, really interesting to watch. Um, do you think that, I, I guess I'm going to go back to your Senate map that you mm-hmm. told us last yeah. week. How are you feeling about that map right now? Do you think that's going to come to fruition? I'm specifically thinking about Nevada. It's one of the few states that yeah. we're still counting. Um, it's red right now on pretty much any sort of polling site, but New York Times Needle still has it projected for Cortez Mastro. It does. Yeah. Well, um, so I believe I said it would be... <clears throat> excuse me, a 50-50 Senate, and I got there by saying Pennsylvania uh, was a Fetterman win, which he did. Yeah. He did win. By a pretty um, decent margin. By a pretty decent margin. Actually, while they continue to vote, count the votes, it looks like it's actually going to be a much stronger win than we had initially even thought. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I had said Laxalt in Nevada, and um, yeah, I believe he's in the lead currently, but from what I'm seeing there, a lot of the remaining votes are still in Clark County, which is, of course, a more urban area. Um, you would anticipate that the margin would be better for CCM than it, uh, than it would be for Laxalt. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. It's very, very close. Um, and, uh, you know, this is also Arizona still tight, right? <laughs> Arizona, we still don't know. For sure. um, and then, of course, Georgia's going to a runoff. So we'll see how it goes. I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. You know, we're more and more frequently these... Uh, you know, elections are becoming election weeks rather than election days. Yeah. Um, not just in that people are voting early, but that it's taking longer to count the votes. True. You got Warnock going in for his, his fourth vote for the same Senate seat in two years. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, <laughs> he's like, haven't I done this before? Come yeah, on. He's, he's a pro at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you think that runoff's going? 
the, the runoff, I think that there are countervailing forces here. Um, number one, it's a runoff, which is usually lower turnout. And lower turnout tends to benefit Republicans. Republican uh, pe- people who d- identify with the Republican Party, they actually tend to be higher turnout people. Midterms, just by their nature, kind of skew more Republican mm-hmm. um, in terms of the overall likely electorate. Right. Um, and so you would expect a special to also skew Republican. Um, however, this time, you know, there won't be that gubernatorial race. There won't, there won't be Brian Kemp on the ballot, kind of, uh, you, you know, a, giving another reason for, pe- for Republicans to come out and vote. So I don't know, countervailing forces. I, I, I think that um, uh, a lot will depend on whether or not the Senate kind of hangs in the balance. You know, if, if Nevada goes to CCM um, and Arizona goes to Kelly, then, um, you know, there probably won't be as much money spent there, although already they're gearing up to spend a lot of money. <laughs> um, in which case, you would think that maybe that would benefit Warnock more, but who knows, right? Yeah, It's not over yet. So I want to talk about polling going into the night. So like yeah. once again, it's 2022 and we can say the polls were a little off. But in the wrong direction. Well, I, I think it's you really have to wait until final vote tallies are in, right? Because you can't compare the error on a poll to an unknown vote outcome. Sure. Right? And we're, we saw that. We just talked about it with Fetterman. And that, you know, if you went just on the results of the initial night, it looked like a less than one point match. Now it could be three points, right? So you really got to wait to totally assess polls until we're done counting. Um, but, you know, that being said, you know, where does it get us? I... I do think you need to look carefully at what some of the forecasters were giving versus what the mood and, and the vibes were in the last two weeks. I think definitely the punditry, the, the, the vibes were, this is going to be terrible for Dems. If you look, you know, 538 Nate Silver, he was projecting a toss-up Senate and a lean R on the House map. And that kind of feels like where we are right now, <laughs> right? So... And, and look, he's, you know, he's using polling as his inputs. I think that there were some individual pollsters that were totally wrong. Trafalgar? Uh, Trafalgar, <laughs> their, their streak is over, I guess, now. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen. You really, to be totally fair, you have to wait until all the votes are counted to be able to um, assess how well the polling did. And that makes sense. Um, but, you know, I think there's something to be said, and I'm curious to get your input on this, mm-hmm. is that... Yeah, going into election week and the week before, I kept on hearing red wave, red wave, red wave everywhere yeah. I go. And my curiosity is, is hearing red wave something that can impact what the election is going to be? If I am under the impression that, you know, Republicans are going to, you know, sweep the House, maybe flip the Senate, am I less incentivized as a Republican to go vote? Could that have an impact? Yeah, on the election? I, I think it can. I mean, we've seen uh, there have been studies about the impact of uh electoral predictions on turnout and some of them indicate that the more certain it looks the less likely you are to vote for the party that it seems more certain for um so that could have had an an impact you know it's it's hard to know with certainty um but yeah like this is this was an uncanny performance for the democrats they were if you take kind of basic political science models that use uh, you know, what's the in-party in the White House? What's the in-party in Congress? Uh, what is uh, uh, the president's uh, approval rating? What's inflation, right? All these things, all these things would point to Democrats losing, you know, 40 to 50 seats. But that is absolutely not happening. We're not looking at anything like that. So uh, very interesting night. So talking about the House for a minute. Yeah. What were your big surprises there? Um, I don't... Were there any? 
Well, no, I don't know that there were any big surprises. Like, uh, but there were certainly a lot of toss-ups that were interesting to see what direction <laughs> sure. they went. I mean, seeing uh, Spamberger come through in Northern Virginia, uh, I think said a lot about the tone of the evening. Right. You know. Right. Um, but then, of course, you know, uh, having the D Triple C chair, you know, uh, lose his race. <laughs> Sean Patrick Malone. That, that poor guy. <laughs> that was a big shock. Um, There's a trend in midterms of like big Dems getting uh, knocked out. I got Crowley and Maloney yeah. now. Yeah. Well, and he carpet bagged that seat too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he switched to a seat he thought he could win more easily, and then he lost the seat he thought he could win more easily, <laughs> while the other guy won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw some talk about you know what happened in New York with their redistricting, Absolutely. And, uh, and that seems to have had a big impact. Um, but it, a lot of that, I think, uh, from what I understand, I'm no expert I, I, on the House or New York or anything like that, but... Um, that the that the Hochul uh, uh, Zeldin race really pulled in a lot more Republicans because they kind of thought they had a chance, and that may have really helped with some of those flips in New York. Definitely, uh, talking about Florida. Yeah. Oof. Let's unpack the results in Florida. Yeah, I mean the DeSantis results are really uh, impressive, right? He did really really well, especially seeing that he won Miami Dade County. Um, that's a huge accomplishment. Huge accomplishment. And so, um, you know, in my mind, the question you need to ask yourself or that one should be wondering about this is what does what do those results say more about? Does it say more about Ron DeSantis or does it say more about just Florida and the trend there? Um, Florida is undoubtedly becoming more and more firmly a red state. Um, but, you know, Ron DeSantis performed even better than you might think, given that, uh, you know, Florida's trending red. And so, you know. Kudos to him. Hats off to him. It was uh, he he did really extraordinary things there. Um, do, do you think that the pollings, in, I guess uh, the results in Florida, indicate something about the future of the Republican Party? Uh, I've been reading a lot that they say you know the winner of the night was DeSantis, the mm-hmm. loser was Trump. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your take on that is. Well, undoubtedly, it's good for Governor DeSantis, and he wants to be the future of the Republican Party. <laughs> the question, I think, is you know how. How quickly does he want to be the future of the Republican Party? Um, I have a bit of a take that I think is different from a lot of other people, a lot of the other fellows here, and that I don't think Ron DeSantis should run for president in 2024. I think he's he's still very young, first of all. I think he's only like 46 or 45 or something like that. Um, but second of all, he was just elected to a second term in a very important state, you know, and he could conceivably be coming off a, a popular second term. I mean, that's that's the roll of the dice, is what does your second term look yeah. like? But he could conceivably be coming off a second term as a, as a popular governor of a critical state in, w- when would he come out? January 2027, right? He'd be primed for he, primary. He, he could announce just a few months later for the GOP primary. There will be an open GOP primary in my mind in 2028 because I think Trump is likely to run again in 2024. I think... If he wins the, the nomination and wins the presidency, he'll be term limited out, so there will be an open GOP primary. If he wins the nomination and loses the general, there will be an open GOP primary in 2028. I just don't see why Ron DeSantis would like go take the risk of taking on Donald Trump, who's clearly the standard bearer for the party, and who clearly has come out unscathed from far worse than this. True. Right? True. You, you could hear on TV, I think, at his victory party, yeah. you had people chanting two more years. They did. Yes, they did. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. so he gets two years in the governor's That's mansion. And... They, they, they know yeah. what's coming. <laughs> I, I just, if I were his advisors, I'd be, I'd be telling him to wait. Now, yeah. of course, the risk is you end up 
like Chris Christie and you have a terrible second term and you have a huge, you know, controversy, Bridgegate, right. and, and that really hurts your chances. So, yeah, the question is, like, do you think that this is a unique moment for you to seize and what do you think your second term looks like? And do you think you can beat Donald Trump? I agree with you. I think Trump's kind of a wrecking ball. Like, you know, if you lose to Trump, you know, I think you're kind of permanently scarred. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Trump is, is a once-in-a-lifetime politician, I think. For and, sure. And I think Ron DeSantis needs to think really deeply about whether he wants to be taking that on. I want to I talk about the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, you know, if you asked me two months ago what the midterms would be like, I would not have predicted this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious... Um, you know, I, I would have told you that the Democrats need to find someone else in 2024, but now I guess Dark Brandon has worked his magic. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious, how does, uh, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen at the midterms for sure, but I definitely think there's a Democratic overperformance um, than mm. what we expected. How do you think that bears on whether or not the Democrats uh, should renominate Biden as the standard bearer in 2024? Well, I think they'd be fools not to. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, why would you not renominate an incumbent president? You know, uh, the power of the presidency is still profound, you know, um, and, and they'd be fools to give that up. I also think they know that Joe Biden has beaten Donald Trump before. I think they should anticipate that Donald Trump is the nominee. And why wouldn't you uh, put Joe Biden up against him again? But if it is Joe Biden mm-hmm. versus Ron DeSantis in 2024, where does that go? That's tough. I think it's tough for the Dems. I think, um, you know, Ron DeSantis is, uh, is I think, an engaging politician. Right. I think uh, most of the criticisms that are out in the world about Biden revolve around his age, you know. Um, and I mean as a candidate. I'm not talking about policy-wise. Mm-hmm. But as a candidate, um, that's the most common criticism. And, um, and that would be tough. I think that would be, be really hard for them. Definitely. So going back to the House, more broadly speaking, mm-hmm. the actual results. Yeah. Right now, there's a bunch of toss-ups in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the Democrats could still hold the House where we're at right now? I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. But it's, a, it's still a plausible outcome. Yeah. But it, it's, the margin's so slim that I, I, think they're, I think it's likely a GOP takeover, but it won't be much of a margin there. Imagine the chaos in the House with three-seat margin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it could be tough. It's going to be interesting. It'll be very difficult. I, I'm curious. You mentioned earlier that you know this is a historical performance for an incumbent party, given all the factors at yeah. work. I'm curious. You know what what caused this? What were the factors involved in creating um, these midterm results? In my mind, it comes down to candidate quality, right? I, I think we may have talked about this on on our previous episode, but like, look, the the point of a political party is to nominate the the most electable candidate the candidate that stands the best chance of actually winning the general election. That is how you get policy changes to happen. Mm-hmm. You nominate somebody who is electable. <laughs> and I just think we saw uh, a, a, like an underperformance in terms of candidate quality on the right. right? And you saw that just in that the number of ticket splitters that existed in a lot of these states. You know, there were a fair number of Kemp, Warnock, you know, ticket splitters. And even in Ohio, where J.D. Vance still won, you know, there were a lot of, uh, of ticket splitters there who weren't voting for Vance, but were v- voting for DeWine, right? And you saw that in a couple other states as well. And so, look, you, you got to nominate people who, you know, are appealing to the general electorate. 
You mentioned uh, in our previous episode the kind of post-mortem analysis that happens oh, yeah. between parties. I'm curious, do you think uh, the Republicans' post-mortem analysis will reflect that conclusion? And do you think it'll impact, you know, will we see more of a return to the Republicans of uh, the Obama era? Or do you think this is going to be the continued path? Uh, I mean, <laughs> look, we did a post-mortem in 2012 and nobody followed that one. So um, it depends on kind of who does it. And, and I think there's a conversation happening. But the question is, is that conversation enough among, you know, the the elite Republican swamp dwellers, <laughs> you know, is that enough to overcome, I think, what is a very motivated grassroots base that is dictating a lot of the, the outcomes at the state party level, right? And so if you still have a really motivated base that still loves, you know, a particular kind of Republican, it's going to be hard to overcome that. How big do you think that base is? Well, it's big enough to cause enough. a lot of damage <laughs> at, at state parties, right? I right. mean, it, you know, the, the question is to what extent do the people who are in power at the state parties, um, what levers do they have at their disposal and how strongly do they feel about it, right. um, you know, to, to kind of provide opportunities for more electable Republicans to get the nomination. Um, I, I want to tune into a specific race, and this might be a little little too niche, but I want to talk about Alaska. Um, <laughs> okay. I was thinking that too. Yeah, I know. I've been, I've been following that. I think what you said about party splitting is really interesting. Yeah. If you look at uh, Alaska's Senate race and Alaska's right. House race, I, I yeah. believe it's Peltola who's leading the Alaska House race. 47%. She's, she's very close. And I think she might actually get it, depending on how the ranked choice voting works out. Mm-hmm. But then when you examine the Senate race, the Democrat there has like less than 10%. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lisa Murkowski is extremely well-known in the state. And, and so it's not surprising to me that, uh, that probably most of that Democratic vote is going to Lisa Murkowski. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's been there for... Institution. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how long, but... Um, but yeah, look, the ranked choice vote also is an opportunity to make a statement with your first vote, but also know that it can be backed up, you know, the way you want it to go. So you have probably a lot of hardcore Dems in Alaska making a statement by voting for the Dem, and that's only your 10% or 12% or whatever that candidate has. But you also probably have a lot of Republicans that want to make a statement and vote for, um, you know, the other candidate first, but then their backup is going to be Murkowski. So... You know, it's an interesting kind of release valve that, that you get from the ranked choice vote uh, there. Makes it really complex to forecast. <laughs> uh, I like. Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, I've never done any forecasting in a ranked choice ballot before. But, you know, presumably, you're, if you have good polling and good data, you could hopefully model out each of those scenarios, I would think. So for you personally... Mm-hmm. Jumping back in the the Republican campaign sphere, maybe? <laughs> no, I doubt it. I doubt <laughs> it. I think I've done my time. <laughs> it's a little stressful. <laughs> yeah. It's a lifestyle choice. What do you think it was like on the inside, uh, some of those campaigns last night? Oh, yeah, you know, it's a triumph and tragedy, right? Like, yeah. it's uh, all the emotions. And, uh, you know, there have been, I, I've had a handful of extreme emotional events in my life, including, like, the birth of my children and getting married. <laughs> but, uh but some of those are, you know, election nights and post-election mornings. You know? The birth of your children, Romney 2012. Yeah. <laughs> and on top you have Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
I saw a Jeb meme on Twitter on election night, by the way, so oh. I thought of you guys when I saw it. Thank that. you, thank you. It all comes <laughs> out. It all comes back to Jeb. It always does. <laughs> always does. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, that's about it. That's about it. Thank about you it. so much for meeting with us and for doing this uh, post-election analysis. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been great. Absolutely. Until next time. Yep. See you. Thanks for listening to Fly on the Wall. You can find us on social media by searching at Fly on the Wall Pod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, Managing Director of the Pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.